When the average adult male stretches out his arms, the distance from fingertip to fingertip is supposed to be 2.1 inches greater than his height. We call it the wingspan. Whereas the average NBA prospect has a wingspan of 4.4 inches longer than his height. Basketball great Kevin Durant is 6 foot 9 inches tall, but his wingspan is almost 7 foot 5 inches. That means that he is an incredibly 8 inches wider than he is taller. Today, basketball scouts, they look for players with long wingspans as much as they do players of great height. The question they ask is, how long does he play? And this is also what Isaiah scouts out about God. Here in chapter 59, verse 1. For he notes God's reach, God's wingspan. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Oh, at the time of Isaiah, the nation Judah was in trouble. And some of the Jews were questioning if God was even able to save. I mean, how long is his reach? Isaiah assures us and assures God's people that his hand is not too short, that God plays long, that his wingspan spans the universe, that he can reach from the pit of hell to the highest heaven, at the same time, no one is beyond God's grasp, his ability to save. Nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. God is not hard of hearing. The ear of God can hear a pin drop. Rest assured that when men are lost and in trouble, it's not God's fault. It's not that he doesn't hear their cries or is unable to reach them. There is nothing you've done, no crime, no perversion that God won't forgive. You see, God's ear is always tuned to the frequency of sincerity. He is quick to respond to every heartfelt cry of repentance. Now, the reason that hordes of people are marching off to hell tonight isn't that God can't hear or that God can't reach. The problem is not God. Isaiah explains in verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. See, it's not God's inability, but it's man's iniquity that's the problem. The Jews were blaming God. Oh, He doesn't hear our prayers. Oh, our problems are out of His reach. But the problem was their own heart. While they were pleading for God's help, they were holding on to their sin. They needed to repent, to turn from their sin for God to help. Oh, God hears everyone. God can save anyone. But He's willing to save only those who give Him complete prerogative to change their life however He desires. He says, For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. And all the while, remember, they were crying out for God's help. No wonder he had refused to answer. Isaiah 59 goes on to enumerate 32 different sins of which the nation was guilty. God had heard their cries, but he had also read their hearts, and he had seen their wicked ways. And he begins to expose them, verse 4. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. In short, they perpetuate the evil of others. They spread the poison of vipers by hatching their eggs. And they weave the webs of spiders to help snare their prey. They may claim to be the people of God, but in reality they're friends of the world. He says their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. 
Notice here a spider's web that makes no silk. Their webs will not become garments. It only traps its prey. Thus were the words of Judah's leaders. As we're told back in verse 4, they spoke lies and empty words to deceive. No one calls for justice. And it sounds like today's politicians, doesn't it? He says, who pleads for truth? They make promises that they don't intend to keep. Verse 7, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. And of course, the shedding of innocent blood in our day has to be applied to the wickedness of abortion on demand. He says, the way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light. But there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. They were looking for a ray of light, but there was only dark. And this is how we would describe our day, is it not? We look for a ray of hope, a ray of light, and see only darkness. And yet this was written by Isaiah for his times, some 2,700 years ago, not for today. You know, I suppose the silver lining in our cloud is that though it seems hopeless today, it has seemed hopeless before in Isaiah's day. And yet we know that God was able to break through then. That means that he can do it again. We're told we grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. In other words, we gravitate between uproar and complacency. Oh, at times we growl like bears, at other times we just sort of moan like doves. We get angry and we growl or we moan as if there's nothing we can do. We go back and forth between uproar and complacency. He says, For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against you. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. And notice this. We, he says, We know our iniquities. And don't we all? I mean, our words might deny them at times, but we know in our hearts when we've sinned. He says, in transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. You know, it is a sad day when truth has fallen in the street. Or in other words, when men can no longer count on the words of another man. When everyone speaks lies, it's a sad day. How can society function when nobody can believe anyone else? How can contracts be made? How can agreements be forged? He says, verse 15, So truth fails, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him, but there was no justice. In Isaiah's day, truth had failed. Everything had become relative. There were no longer any absolutes. Human fickleness and arbitrariness had become the final authority. And when that happens, there is no justice. At that point, the only hope is divine intervention. For the Lord to see it and to do something to restore the truth. That's what he says here, then the Lord saw. And he intervened. And I don't know about you, but that's my hope for America. That's what I'm praying for. That the Lord will see it and intervene and bring revival to our land. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him and his own righteousness. It sustained him. Now, when the humble Jews 
had returned to their land from their exile in Babylon. It didn't take long for the people to again become proud and self-sufficient. And God looked for a deliverer. He looked for an intercessor through which he could work and deliver his people, but he found no one. You see, the Davidic kings, they had been dethroned. The nation lacked a prophet, a prophetic voice. God wanted to work among his people, but he had no one with which to partner. And so he took matters into his own hands. And God opted. He devised a do-it-yourself salvation. He sent his only son into the world to die in our place. It says, therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. You remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? He ratified it while Abraham snoozed. You remember Abraham expected God to come, and together they would walk through the animal parts. God fulfilling his part, Abraham fulfilling his part. But, but that's not what happened. Abraham woke up just in time to see God walking through the animal parts by himself. In other words, God did it himself. All Abraham did was look on and believe. And this is all we're required to do, is to believe in the work of Jesus Christ, to put our faith in his sacrificial work, to put our sins on his shoulders. That's all we're required to do. What an incredible salvation we've received It is all of God. Our part is only to believe. It is His do-it-Himself salvation. And it not only saves the Jews, but it is for all nations. It can save all nations. It is mighty to save. He says, For He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. In other words, God dressed for the occasion. What do you put on when you're going to save the world? Well, you put on righteousness as a breastplate, and you put on the helmet of salvation and garments for vengeance and zeal as a cloak. Jesus committed to what was right, and he wore a helmet of salvation. He was determined to do what it would take to save us. And, you know, we should dress like Jesus. You know, in Ephesians chapter 6, there Paul lists the believer's armor. And guess what he includes? Both the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. This is equipment for us. But what he doesn't add to our wardrobe are these other two pieces of armor that he mentions here. The garments of vengeance and the cloak of zeal. That belonged to Jesus, not us. And why? Romans 12 verse 19 tells us, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, the zeal of judgment is God's prerogative, not ours. At Jesus' first coming, he came all dressed up to save. He wore the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. But at his second coming, he'll be wearing his combat fatigues. He'll come to judge in his garments of vengeance and in his zeal as a cloak. And then in verse 18, we're told, according to their deeds, according, accordingly, he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. The coastlands he will fully repay. Now, here's what no one should want. You don't want to be repaid for your deeds. You don't. You want God to treat you with mercy. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want him to give you what you've earned. You want him to treat you with mercy. He punishes his enemies here for their wicked deeds. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from, that, from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. That is, from the east. They, they're going to fear him from east to west. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, says the Lord. Notice God's arm It is not shortened. He is willing. He is able. If we are willing to turn from our transgressions. Now, these verses have some prophetic implications. Revelation and Daniel tell us that in the last days, in the days of God's judgment on planet earth, what we call the great tribulation, that the armies of the Antichrist will pour into Israel like a flood, That's what he says here, when the enemy comes in like a flood. 
Yet God will come to his people's defense. We call this conflict the Battle of Armageddon. But again, Megiddo is just the staging ground. The war will be fought over Zion. The Redeemer will come to Zion, Isaiah says, or to Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God will raise up another standard, or literally another banner, another flag, flying over an opposing army. In other words, the Redeemer will come to save Zion. And His name? The Bible tells us, King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 19 pictures Jesus on a war horse leading a heavenly army against the usurpers on earth. As we learned this morning, Isaiah 63 reveals the victor of this battle. He's clothed in bloody garments, for he comes up from Basra. His garments are glorious, and he's marching in his strength. His name is Jesus. And then verse 21, As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. This is his covenant with Israel. Israel gets in trouble. The enemy comes in like a flood, but the Redeemer comes to save Zion. This is, this is as for me, says the Lord. This is my covenant with them. My spirit who is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your descendants nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. And in light of verse 21, how can anyone ever question God's faithfulness to the Jewish people? God is not through with the Hebrews. His Spirit will be with His people, not just to the first or to the second or to the third generation, but forevermore. That's what He tells Isaiah. Chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Once a pastor, he asked a member of his congregation what he thought was the church's greatest problem. Ignorance or apathy? The man kind of shrugged and replied, I, I don't know and I don't care. Well, for centuries, this has been Israel's problem. Ignorance at times, apathy at other times. Rather than arise, shine throughout their history, it was more often Arise and whine. They complained a lot. But one day, God's glory will rise upon Israel. He will make the nation great. Jesus will reign. And His glory will be the rising tide that raises all boats in the harbor. Chapter 60 is a vision of what the world will be like when Jesus rules. When God's kingdom has finally come. He says, For behold... That darkness that covered the earth, it shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. It's when the world becomes darkest, God is going to shine upon His people. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, God's plan has always been for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, the Jews became proud and prejudiced. They hated the Gentiles. But not so in the kingdom age. Inclusion will be the watchword. Israel will be a testimony to God's grace. They'll attract Gentiles like a camping light draws bugs. And this is a picture of the church's mission today, I hope you know. Rather than be prejudicial, guys, rather than be proudful, rather than judge others, our job is to attract them to Jesus by displaying His grace. We're to be a light to the lost. Today, darkness covers the earth. Humanism, relativism, hedonism, materialism, paganism, ism after ism after ism. It's a deep darkness out there. But it's against a dark canvas that the light shines brightest. And that's our job, to shine the light. In Matthew 5, verse 16, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. This is what we should be doing today. Speaking of His glory. Standing for His truth. Savoring His joy. Storing up His treasures. Showing off His strength. We need to be bold about it. For it's been said, there isn't enough darkness in the world to put out a single candle. 
The word to Israel of old and to us today is arise, shine. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. He's speaking to Israel in the kingdom age. Though they've been scattered around the world in that day, they'll look up and they'll see Jews returning to the land from all four corners. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned with you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. Jews who have survived the tribulation, they will return to Israel, and they'll come with gifts from the Gentiles. Uh, you remember the Egyptians, they gave the Hebrews gold and silver when they left out of Egypt. Do you remember that, the Exodus? Cyrus paid for the Jews' return from Babylon. And likewise, the Jews who return after Armageddon, they too will be funded by the Gentiles. He says, the multitude of camels shall cover your land. Caravans will arrive from all over. The dromedaries or the young donkeys of Median and Ephoth, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. This was partially fulfilled when the Jews returned from Babylon, but it will be repeated in the last days. It's, often, it's also interesting that when these Jews return, notice they'll be coming and bringing gifts for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ, King Jesus. And notice the two gifts that they bring. They bring him gold and they bring him incense. Now remember when Jesus was born, the wise men brought three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Here the same gifts are given with the exception of the myrrh. And do you know why? Myrrh is an embalming fluid. It was given to a man who was born to die. But in the kingdom age, Jesus' death is behind him. We're on the sunny side of the crucifixion now. He has been raised to never die again. This is why they bring him now gold and incense, and they leave home the myrrh. Verse 7. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Neboeth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Now, this is really amazing. Genesis 25 lists Neboeth and Kedar as the first and second son of Ishmael. Fathers of the Arabs. Both names refer to Arabian tribes. Kedar is the ancient name for Kuwait. This promises to be a sight to see. Israel's ancient enemies, the Arabs, will offer their flocks as sacrifices to the God of the Hebrews. Think of this. The former hosts of Mecca and Medina will contribute to the to glorify the Jewish temple and will offer sacrifices on the altar to God. That'll be amazing. And then, he, and then uh, he goes on, Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first. To bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because He has glorified you. And again, Isaiah is speaking of a future return of Jews to their homeland. Notice he mentions them coming from Tarshish and from the coastlands. You remember when Jonah tried to run from God, he boarded a boat to a ship. He bought a passage to Tarshish. Tarshish was the furthest westward, the furthest western destination that you could travel at the time. Some Bible commentaries have identified it with southern Spain, others even the British Isles. And some see here in this prophecy a reference to both Great Britain and even to the United States or to the coastlands. These are the two great facilitators of the Jewish return. You know, both these countries have been Israel's two main friends in modern times. It's interesting that even after the rebirth of the modern state of Israel and the Zionist movement, 
Still, more Jews live today in New York City than in all of Jerusalem. The cities of London and Paris have the largest Jewish populations outside of Israel and the United States. But here we're told that the coastlands in Tarshish will aid in funding the Jews' return as they come back to the land. He says, who are those who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Now, that's interesting. They return to Israel flying in the clouds like doves to their roosts. And some people have seen here in verse 8, airplanes. The Jews returning to Israel on El Al and Air France and all the rest of them. Returning to Israel, flying like a cloud, like doves. I suppose if air travels in the Bible, this is probably it right here. And then he says, The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Israel will be struck by God. This is what the Great Tribulation is partly about. It's to punish the wicked, but it's also to purify the Jews. And yet in the end, he'll cause the world to build up Zion. Verse 11, Therefore your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night. That means there will be a peaceful time that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. I mean, what a day that'll be. A continual stream of nations and foreign dignitaries will enter Jerusalem and pay homage to King Jesus. He says, For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. You know, Psalm 2 predicts that King Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And in the kingdom age, that's what he'll do. It'll be either bow or bust. Rebellion against Christ and his kingdom will not be tolerated. And then we're told, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. You know, in the Old Testament, the temple was called God's footstool. I like that. You know, the Almighty fills the heavens. You know, the heavens can't contain the glory of God. But where does he relax? Where does he kick back? Where does he put up his feet when he wants to relax? Well, he does so at the temple. The temple is his footstool. Also, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despised you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. Boy, think of that. Everyone who has despised the Jews down through the ages will suddenly come, and they'll lie prostrate at the soles of this king's feet. If that happened today, that group would include Germans and Russians and Iranians and Palestinians. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Imagine all of Israel's former enemies from Marxists to Muslims, anti-Semites from all around the world bowing down to Jesus and pledging allegiance to Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. What a promise that Israel will become an eternal excellence. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breast of kings. Israel will nurse from the support of every nation. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Go to the markets in Jerusalem today and you'll find all these little bronze trinkets for sale. But in the future, the bazaars will be selling gold and silver, not just bronze. He says, violence shall no longer be heard in your land neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Modern Israel has existed now for 67 years and has never known peace with her neighbors. Her borders stay guarded. She keeps constant vigilance. Israel never knows when a rocket from Gaza 
or from the Golan Heights or from Syria will hit one of her villages. She never knows. But the day is coming when violence will be no longer. Salvation and praise will be her watchwords written on her walls and on her gates. Verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Isaiah now looks even deeper into the future. This is language reminiscent of Revelation chapter 22, verse 5. For once this current world disintegrates, God will establish a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah is here looking beyond the kingdom age to the eternal state when the sun is no more and the Lord is the light of the city. Verse 21, Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand. And a small one, a strong nation, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. Israel is here called a little one, a small one. Today, Israel's borders are roughly the size of New Jersey. And yet one day, this little one will be a strong nation. They're well on the way to it today. Chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me. Whenever a Hebrew king took office, the priest would anoint him with olive oil. The oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And this tradition looked forward to a special king. To an heir of David who would be anointed, not just by the priest, but by the Lord himself and by his spirit. And he would not only be anointed with oil, but he would be anointed by the Spirit and the passions of God. This future king was known as Messiah or Christ. Both names mean the anointed one. This is why at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, as soon as he rose from the waters of his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the likeness of a dove. His Father was anointing him with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then all throughout his ministry, Jesus leaned where? On the Holy Spirit. Remember in John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself. That's astonishing. The Lord said, I can do nothing of myself. Why? Because Jesus lived a life that was dependent on and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, he became our example. That if we trust in the Holy Spirit, we can follow in his footsteps and walk in his victory. And he can do his work through us. Now, since chapter 42 in Isaiah, the prophet has been speaking about a special servant of Yahweh. God introduced him in chapter 42, verse 1 of Isaiah. I have put my spirit upon him. And now the subject has become the speaker. For now the Messiah speaks prophetically. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. And Isaiah declares what God anointed the Messiah to do. Here is his mission. Here are his intentions, his intentions for us. He declares, The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And if you've read the Gospels, these should be familiar words to you. Fast forward to Luke chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters. Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth. It's early in his ministry. People are wondering, who is this man? What has he come to do? He goes into the synagogue. It was customary for a visiting rabbi to read and comment on a scripture. And thus he was handed the scroll. And guess where he turned? He turned to what we now call Isaiah 61. Jesus read verse 1 and the first line of verse 2. And then he spoke what was the equivalent of the shot heard round the world. 
today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one and today is the day. He was the Messiah and this is what he had come to do. And what a beautiful summation of the intentions of Jesus. This is so important. For how can you and I give to someone our lives unless we're sure of their intentions? And thus here is what Jesus wants to do in your heart. First, preach good tidings to the poor. Realize you can be a rich man and still be poor. Poor in other ways. I assume we'd all consider the Wall Street Journal an authority on the subject of wealth. But the Wall Street Journal stated, Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and a universal provider of everything except happiness. To be poor is to be without. Not only without money, but without love and friends and laughter and a strong family and peace of mind, purpose in life. Yet Jesus comes to bring good news to those who are without. He comes with spiritual treasure in His hand. He enriches our deepest needs. He locks us into eternal investments. Jesus also was sent to heal the brokenhearted. You know, there are folks in life who have been rejected. They've been bullied by others. They've been taken advantage of. They approached life with high hopes but they live in the wake of constant disappointment. And yet Jesus comes to heal their broken hearts. He is a balm that sucks out the poison. He's an ointment that soothes our aches. When applied to a hurt over time, Jesus' love and His joy causes healing to occur. It's been said, the great physician can do wonders with a broken heart if you give him all the pieces. And then he also wants to proclaim liberty to the captives. And I'm not talking about the inmates at Reedsville or San Quentin or any of the other 4,800 prisons that jail and incarcerate 2.3 million Americans. For there is actually a worse prison. It's called the prison of sin. John chapter 8 verse 34 says, Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, the problem with sin is that it's habitual. You can't just stop with one. Sin tends to be addictive. It becomes binding. And freedom is not as easy as just snapping your fingers. Some sins are like a maze. They're a lot easier to get into than they are to get out of. But Jesus is into jailbreaks. He has the power to restructure mindsets and alter behaviors and to take away desires. He proclaims or He speaks liberty to us. On the cross, He set us free. Now, if we hear Him speak that freedom to us and if we believe in His Word, the cuffs fall off. and We can walk in liberty that He's created for each of us. And Jesus also intends to open the prison to those who are bound. And, of course, this is a different type of prison. Bitterness is a prison of our own making. Oh, the broken heart needs to be healed, but the bitter spirit needs to be repented of. That person needs to be set free. You know, like a wounded heart, bitterness begins with a break. But if you were to break an arm and you never realign it properly, it could heal crooked. And this is what causes bitterness. We nurse our hurt. We lick our wounds. Rather than apply the forgiveness of Jesus, we allow our breaks to grow back crooked and bitter. This is why bitterness needs to be rebroken. This time, though, with a contrite and with a humble heart. Originally, we might have been a victim, but the ungodly way we've handled our hurt needs to be confessed. And when we do, when we come broken before the Lord, He resets us. And He opens the prison for those who are bound in bitterness. And then it was Jesus' intention to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. In essence, do it now. What He had just outlined wasn't just wishful thinking or a day yet future. It was His intentions then and there. And here's a marvelous truth. Hebrews 13 verse 8 declares, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
That means that just as his intentions that day in Nazareth were the same as Isaiah had written about 700 years earlier, his intentions are the same today. Here's what Jesus wants to do in your life. Bring good news and heal your broken heart and release you from sin and break you out of bitterness and do it not tomorrow, not in the future, but right now. Now here's what's interesting. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus stops after these words, the acceptable year of the Lord. That's as far as he goes. That's as much as he preaches. But notice what comes next in Isaiah. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. And of course, the mourning Isaiah is referring to is the result of God's vengeance. Yet on that day in Nazareth, in the synagogue, Jesus didn't talk about the day of God's vengeance. For that wasn't for his day. It was for the last days. His first coming was about salvation, not vengeance. Being that the Bible is ultimately Jesus' word, it's fascinating to me that he recognized at least a 200-year gap right in the middle of Isaiah's sentence. All of Isaiah 61 speaks of our Lord, but Jesus understood that some elements of it spoke of his first coming while others await his second coming. One day, he will bring about God's wrath, but today... Jesus speaks of God's love. Today is the day of salvation, and this should be our mission. Verse 3. And here he continues to speak of his second coming, to console those who mourn in Zion. In other words, he'll be a comfort to the Jews. The world is being offered salvation today, not in that day, but that'll be a day in which he'll do a work among the Jews to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And again, this will be Jesus' ministry to the Jews after the great tribulation, after their time of purification. That they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Hosea chapter 5 verse 15 is an interesting verse. People think it's a prophetic utterance of Jesus. It says, I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their affliction, they will diligently seek me. Remember at his first coming, Jesus was rejected by the Jews. And so he returned to his place. He returned to heaven. And he is waiting now. He's waiting on the Jewish people to acknowledge their offense and to seek his face, and they will. Zechariah 12 verse 10 predicts that in the end times, the Jews will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. It's then that Jesus will swap the believing Jews beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning. And then verse 4, And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. When Jesus returns, the cities of Israel will undergo major renovations. There'll be urban facelifts everywhere. You know, today, Israel is famous for its ruins. If you've been to Israel with me, you know, you know what we see everywhere we go. Tell this, tell that, tell, tell, tell. The countryside is sprinkled with these tales. A tale is an archaeological dig that was once an ancient city. What happens, the cities get demolished in battle only to be rebuilt on the same spot with the same materials by the new ruler, the new king, and a mound eventually rises up on the landscape. It's this city that's been rebuilt over and over and over again. It's called a tale. A tale is literally a desolation of many generations, as Isaiah puts it here. And there's Tel Dan, there's Tel Megiddo, there's Tel Aviv. You've heard of that city. But the day will come when Israel will no longer be known for its tales. There'll be renovation, there'll be reconstruction. The Lord promises to rebuild the old ruins. He says, strangers shall stand and feed your flocks 
And the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. The day will come when the foreigners will be the farmers and the vineyard keepers. The Jewish people will be the priests. In Exodus 19, God promised Israel that if the nation was obedient, He would make them a kingdom of priests, and that He will one day. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor, and instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Israel will be treated as a firstborn, for they are God's firstborn, and thus they'll be given a double portion. How can you read these things and think that God is through with Israel? His promises are still yet to be fulfilled. Verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. All nations will know that God's firstborn, His special people, is Israel. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Of course, over the history, Israel has played the harlot, has given herself to other gods. But in the end, God will be the groom, and Israel will be his wife, and together they'll live happily ever after. Verse 11, For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Finally, Israel will be the light of God to all the earth. And then chapter 62 begins. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. Notice God will not be patient with man's wickedness forever. He will act. He will judge for Zion's sake. He will judge for Jerusalem's sake. God has made promises to Israel. He's entered into covenants, relationship-defining agreements. He went into a covenant with Abraham and to David and to Jeremiah. And it's because of these covenants that God has unfinished business with planet Earth and particularly with the nation Israel. He says, The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. And what name is that? Well, the Spirit doesn't tell us. But Israel will get a new name. He says, You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah, and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. Hephzibah means my delight is in her. Beulah is the Hebrew word for married. Have you ever heard the term Beulah land? It was an old hymn, I think, called Beulah Land. It's a reminder of God's love, His love relationship with His people Israel. That they're His bride, that He is their husband. Verse 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. For two millenniums, the land of Israel lay desolate. It lay forsaken by the Jews of the diaspora. But in the kingdom age, the Jews will embrace, embrace the land with the same passion that a young man embraces his virgin bride. God will seal their union with his rejoicing. Go to Israel today and you'll see that love affair between the people and their land. It's already begun. 
which leads to verse 6. If you love someone, you'll watch them. You'll keep your eye on them. You'll look out for them. And thus, God says, I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. These watchmen are on constant alert. One of the first things we do whenever we get to Jerusalem is we have the bus driver take us around to the Jaffa Gate. We unload and we walk up on top of the walls. We walk all the way from the Jaffa Gate all the way around to Zion's Gate, there by the Mount of Olives. And it's wonderful to be on top of those walls. And if you've been there, you know what these, you know the view that these watchmen have. You've been there yourself. You can see the view. And you can see how that from the top of those walls, you can see danger on all sides of Jerusalem. God will set the watchmen there. They'll be on constant alert. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. And give Him no rest till He establishes, until He makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. In other words, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Don't give God any rest until peace comes. The Lord has sworn by His right hand and by the arm of His strength, Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies, and the sons of the foreigner shall not drink your new wine for which you have labored. For those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy courts. Isaiah is telling those who pray to remind God of his promises to Jerusalem. And the description that Isaiah gives of Jerusalem's status, it obviously points to a time still future. For nothing in its storied past parallels these next comments. He writes in verse 10, Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Take out the stones. Lift up a banner for the peoples. Indeed, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the world. Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Apparently, this city's salvation isn't a plan. It isn't a project. It isn't some massive building campaign. It's a person. Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. And who is the salvation of Jerusalem? His name is Jesus. And they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Throughout Jerusalem's long history, the city has been sacked hundreds of times. And yet in the end, the city of Jerusalem will be known as a city not forsaken. For Jesus will come to her rescue. And this is what we'll study next week in Isaiah 63. The battle to end all battles, call it Armageddon or even a better name, the battle over Jerusalem. And there we have... Isaiah chapters 59 to 62.